Hello and welcome to It Starts With Beer. I'm your host, Will Sis, and in this episode, we get to get out of our little world and travel all the way to South Africa, specifically Cape Town, where my guest, the beer and travel writer Lucy Korn, lives. This episode is brought to you by Brassworks Brewing, making a wide variety of beer in Waterbury, Connecticut. We're talking a juicy, fouled-up New England IPA, clean and crisp Edison Light, a vibrant blood orange farmhouse, and my favorite, rich and chocolatey Abel Porter. You'll find their cans in package stores, and you can enjoy their beer indoors and out at their taproom. For more information, go to BrassWorksBrewing.com. Now, Lucy Korn came to my attention when I learned that she had won a North American Guild of Beer Writers Award for a blog post in Good Beer Hunting about how South African brewers were brewing this ancient style of beer that I could not pronounce when I read it. So in this episode, not only do you learn how to pronounce this uh, thick, chewy herb beer, but you get the lowdown on South African beer history in general, what's going on in South Africa today, and some wonderful insight into what it's like to be an intrepid travel writer for publications like Lonely Planet. So stay tuned after the interview for the after party for when I get to play this episode's after party track. Ravens and Crows by singer Robert C. Fullerton. And I also reflect and get in some deep thoughts. Uh, So here's a preview of Robert's song, followed by my interview with South African beer expert Lucy Korn. Let's listen in. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you came to living there. Yeah, so I'm originally from the UK. I've been in Cape Town now for 10 years. And um, we actually, myself and my husband, we moved down here for a year. He was doing his master's degree here. But um, Cape Town has this way of kind of just grabbing hold of people. And so after a year, we were like, well, maybe we'll stay two. And then after two, we were like, well, let's just stay. (laughs) And I'd been working as a writer, as a freelance writer for quite a while, probably for six or seven years by then, mostly focusing on travel. And, um, you know, we were living in Asia before and in Europe, and it's very easy to travel to different different countries, whereas like right at the tip of Africa, it's quite expensive to get anywhere. So I thought, well, I'm going to have to do something else other than travel writing. And, you know, I love food and drink. And so I thought maybe food blog, but Cape Town has lots of well-established, very good food bloggers. And I thought, well, maybe wine, because I was really interested in wine, but there's also lots of people, because we have quite a big wine industry. Lots of people who know more than I do, but we'd, um, my husband had been homebrewing for a few years 
and we'd been living in South Korea and got quite um, involved in the homebrewing community there. And so I thought, well, maybe we could see, you see, we traveled in South Africa, it was probably 2006, 2007. And we could see when we returned in 2010 that things were just starting. Like the, you could see that the craft beer movement was just about to start. So I was like, well, nobody's writing about beer. Maybe I'll try that. And um, yeah, it was supposed to be just a side, you know, to give me a bit more, I don't know, breadth in, in writing. And I started doing just a blog for a, a travel magazine uh, based in Cape Town. And it was actually supposed to be about all kinds of foods. You know, it's like fun tasting. So if there was like a cool wine pairing or like a new whiskey tasting or whatever. Yeah. And they kept coming back to me and saying, the beer stuff is what's getting all the hits. Please write something else about beer. So it ended up being just about beer um, because no one else was writing about beer. And it was brand new, like all these different styles and, you know, the craft brewers. It was brand, brand new then. This would have been in the start of 2011. Then couple of I want to say four years ago I was approached by a, a publisher who was interested in starting a beer magazine so this like this sideline ended up taking over my life in a really good way since then you know I've done all kind of you know uh, courses and things to improve my knowledge and and you know it's just sort of become it has beer has completely taken over my life but I don't want that to sound like a bad thing it's a great <laughs> thing no 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 you're among friends uh, we know what you mean <laughs> by that can you give for those of us who know so little, a bit of an overview of what the history of brewing in South Africa has been? So um, there's kind of two aspects to it. There's the history of beer as, as you and I know it, and then the history of traditional African beer, which goes back way, way further. So in terms of traditional African beer, it's got very little in common with what in, Afri- in South Africa is termed clear beer because traditional African beer is not clear. It's opaque and it's not New England IPA opaque. It's really like completely, it's like clam chowder, you know, like really thick. It's it's not carbonated, it's not filtered. There's like particles of grain suspended. It's literally chewy. So it's completely different species, let's say. It's a completely different kind of beer. And very little has been written about the history of it, even to the extent of how far back it, it goes. You know, it's, it's a sorghum-based beer, and nowadays it uses maize alongside sorghum. But it's actually a project that I'm hoping to get started on in 2021 to learn, up, learn more about traditional African beer, not just in South Africa, but elsewhere, because at the moment there's so little written about it. Well, I read an article that you wrote in Good Beer Hunting, you know, and, and it was fascinating in terms of you know, learning about this beer. I'm mostly interested, how do you pronounce it? So there's 11, sorry, yes, 11 official languages in South Africa. And it's actually pronounced umhomboti. So there are three clicks in the, it's in the Tulsa language. It's, I'm not getting that, I'm butchering these clicks, you know, it's another language. I, I did, I've done like a beginner course um, and the clicks are really difficult to sort of, to get right. The Q is a, is a click that kind of sounds like, so it's umhomboti. Sometimes I get it right. Sometimes I don't. (laughs) It is like beer in the sense that it's fermented. There's fermentable sugars coming from the the maize, but that's the new thing. The sorghum was the base prior to that. Uh, But Mm. it doesn't have, does it have anything bittering in it? Is it, is it like anything hop, hop like at all? No, I mean, the ingredients are basically water, sorghum and maize. Some people add yeast. Traditionally, it's a well-fermented beer. And there's no bittering, but it's sour. You know, mm. it's 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 quite sour and funky. <laughs> it's, I bet. 
I think nowadays with people, you know, with the with the advent of sour beers becoming quite popular, it could be something people could be a bit more amenable to. When I first tasted it, it was probably 2002 or three, and I'd actually come to South Africa as a backpacker, and I was like, oh, what is this? You know, because it's so alien to what my idea of beer was. And I'd never had sour beers at that time either. You know, I'd never been to Belgium and I hadn't had a Lambic or anything similar to that. So it was so far removed in every respect because it's kind of a weird pinkish grayish color. It's completely, like I say, completely opaque and it's chewy and thick and it was sour and it didn't for me bear any resemblance to beer. Mm -hmm. I've actually now, I mean, you know, I tried it again for the, the first time in years. About this time last year, I was in Botswana and tried it again and I was like, expecting to just have one polite sip you know and then sort of move along and I tasted it and I was like oh and I tasted again and again and then I said, I'm actually going to get my notebook and start writing some tasting notes because it's fascinating and no one no one's writing about it so it's definitely something I'd like to uh, to focus more on. So that was like the the pre-beer or the beer that comes from the land that that was always there Tell me a little bit about the history of more traditional brewing in South Africa and, and the impact that apartheid had on it. So um, brewing of what is kind of termed as clear beer, just to differentiate from traditional beer, it dates back to the Dutch settlers who came in the 1650s. So it's always Jan van Riebeek was the, this, like the first Dutchman at, at the Cape. And it's always talked about how he started the wine industry and he planted vines you know, the wine industry makes quite a big deal of it. But in fact, he brewed beer before he made wine. And by, by you know, Carlson, I've actually been reading his translated diaries. There's like just hundreds of pages of, of talking about wind and, you know, the wind change and, and really dull stuff. And then suddenly a mention of something beer related. <laughs> you get all excited. Yes. I think on the first or second sort of shopping list that he sent back to the Netherlands, was that he requested the ingredients for beer because you know it's like we're gonna we're gonna need some beer down here so by all accounts his first attempts at brewing were not great um although i think he recorded in his diary that they were other people had recorded that it was undrinkable the dutch east india company uh, sent brewers down to try and get the the beer thing going i mean cape town was sort of established as a refreshment station for people traveling around the cape of good hope you know before you could go through the Suez canal to get to to the east so that you know on the way to the the spice route if you will it was developed as a they called it a refreshment station so you can't really have a refreshment station without beer can you no. so they did try and the first actual brewery was set up uh, in the suburbs of cape town it would have been towards the end of the 17th century i can't remember the exact date yeah and then from there th that area became the center of brewing because it has um springs it has natural springs that are fed from table mountain now this is pre-refrigeration. What? How did they um, get around the climate? That is a really good question, and I'm not sure. My immediate answer would be that they didn't, and there was a lot of sour beer going on. It would be, you know, I, I haven't actually. There's very little uh, again written, and I did actually start a project that I was partly interrupted by other projects, and then partly by COVID and all the, you know, the associated, you know, everything stopping. I need to be able to get access to the archives in Cape Town to try and sort of find out more. So it's another project that I'm quite interested. There was a book written on beer history in South Africa in the 1960s, but nothing since. And so I'd really like to sort of look at that. It's just a matter of prioritizing all these things I'd like to do. Now, the, uh, getting into the um, 20th century, 
what kind of developments uh, happened, you know, later on or as we get closer to more modern beer history? So it was actually right at the end of the 19th century. I think it's like the 1890s. That's when things sort of started happening. That's when the Castle Brewery started in in Johannesburg. I think it might have started, it was called the Glass Brewery first, I think. And there was also, there were a couple of breweries in Cape Town, one of which still exists and is now owned by, it's the oldest brewery in South Africa. It goes back to 1820, I think. And it's it's now owned by SAB, which in turn is owned by AB InBev. But it's still got some of the historical, it's, it's actually fascinating. You can go and you, if you do the tour, you do the, sort of the new bit of the tour with the fancy mesmerizing bottling line, but you can also do the historical side of it as well. So it's the only place really where there is some tangible, visible beer history from South Africa. So that is in Newlands, which is the suburb where the very first brewery was started, the suburb that's fed with, 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 um, with spring water. And the brewery, Newlands Brewery, which is the SAB brewery, still owns the rights to one of the springs. Um, you know, and they use the that water in the the um, SAB or ABI. We still call it SAB here. No one really knows about ABI in South Africa. Right. SAB is this, you see, the, because, so it started as um, a little brewery in Joburg, and then there was also a brewery in Durban, one of the other major cities, and then a couple in Cape Town. And gradually, as happens, they started merging and, and buying out and that sort of thing. And then South African breweries started... I, you know, I'm terrible on dates. I'd be a terrible history major. Early 20th century, 1920s, probably 1920s, and started as South African breweries and then got bigger and bigger and became, you know, took over Miller, became SAB Miller. And, and South Africans have a very strong sense of pride about SAB because it was a South African-born company that became huge. And there's still a real sense of, uh, you know, it's still marketed as SAB really in South Africa. The the ABI name has not really made any kind of, and, and it would be silly to do that because people are very brand loyal and they're very, like I say, they're very proud of SAB. So yeah, that was the start of the 20th century. And then for a long time, SAB was really the only brewery. I think in the 1950s, there were a couple of others that, that gradually then got eaten up by SAB or just disappeared. And yeah, SAB, I'm not sure when Heineken came into the market because Heineken brew in South Africa as well. But for the longest time, it was only SAB until the 80s. Now, was this primarily a a white venture or was there black participation as well when it came up to in the in the 50s and 60s and 70s? No, I think in terms of um, on a management level or ownership level, it would have been almost entirely, if not completely white owned and white run until sort of then probably until the 80s or 90s, mm-hmm. you know, when transformation started to happen in South Africa. Um, yeah, this is a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a whole other history. There's a lot going on in South African history. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about the breweries today, about how many breweries. I mean, this is a you know, large country, a little less than twice the size of Texas, about 58, 59 million people. Uh, about how many breweries or I guess I guess you call them craft breweries, breweries would, would, would one be able to travel to? So um, we've got now about, I would, so including contract brands, there's probably about 180, but actual physical breweries closer to 150-ish. It's difficult this year to keep an eye on numbers because we've had quite a few closures. 
Sure. And there's a lot of people who have had no social media presence and haven't replied to any emails and you don't know if they're closed or not. So at the moment, it's quite an approximate, let's say about 150 actual physical microbreweries and then another 30 or 40 contract brands. Now, what was the scene like, let's say, pre-COVID? You know, how were people enjoying craft beer? Were they going to uh, breweries and drinking there? Or were they drinking it uh, in bars? What, how would someone who traveled or how would someone local really experience craft beer there? So I think the sort of the tap rooms and the brew pubs um, have be, been getting you know more and more popular. I mean, craft beer in South Africa is very niche. But um, so in the cities, in the major cities, Cape Town especially, Cape Town's the, the sort of the center of the, of the craft beer scene in South Africa by far. The province that Cape Town is in, the Western Cape, accounts for about 50% of the microbreweries in the one province. Johannesburg scene is, is developing quite nicely now and then Durban and everywhere else it's very scattered. So there's an increasing number of tap rooms and, and brew pubs. It's quite difficult for the brewers in terms of distribution, uh, for the very small brewers to get into liquor stores and, and restaurants and bars. You know, it's, you have to own the tap to put, you know, to pour in a, or the bar, I guess the bar could own the taps, but there's very few because craft beer is still quite new. There are very few bars and restaurants that have their own taps. So basically then people come into the, the brewers come into the scene and they're like, oh, I'm going to distribute my beer to these bars. Not realizing those taps all belong to SAB. And of course you can't put your beer through their taps, but then you've got to install your own taps because the bar or restaurant's not going to do it because that's too expensive and it's not worth their while. So distribution has been quite difficult. And because of that, more and more breweries have been opening tap rooms. Even the guys who, a lot of the breweries are in sort of industrial garage park sort of things. It's sort of on the outskirts, in industrial areas of the city. Due to the licensing, you have to be in an industrial zoned area in South Africa in order to be able to brew. And for a long time, it was just like, this is where we brew. And then it will be in liquor stores or whatever, in, in bars. But increasingly, even like tiny little garage setup, I mean, it's not the actual garage, but um, they're starting to open little tap rooms. So you could you could actually go and visit there. But it is still very niche. Um, it accounts for about craft beer, accounts for slightly less than 1% of all beer consumed in South Africa. Best guess. Yeah. So yeah, we've got a long way to go still. And that was pre-COVID. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about these professional brewers. Can you paint a picture of who they are? We've got a real mix, actually. Um, the, the first wave, certainly, same as everywhere else, I think, were the avid home brewers who then really fell in love with the hobby. And then all their friends say, your beer's amazing. And then they win a few homebrew competitions and then they scale up and scale up and then and then start a, a small brewery. That was kind of the first wave. Then we've got certain breweries that are sort of started by business business people who could see that there was a potential gap in the market, you know, for a larger brew with, with better um, distribution. We have, I think we worked out about 10% of our brewers are women. And I can count on one hand how many are black. <laughs> it's, it is, unfortunately, we have a real diversity problem in craft beer in South Africa, much like many other countries, but it is changing. You know, we, we are seeing more people of color sort of coming into the brewing industry, particularly in the contract brewing space. So this year, there's actually been maybe five or six new brands this year of all years. You know, they were in progress and planning to launch this year. So it's been a bit of a crappy year for them to start their, their brand. 
but yeah, there's, there's been five or six young black guys who've started a contract brand this year. And a few of them have plans to open their own brewery. You know, they, they do the contract thing until they can raise their funds to open their own. So it is, it is changing. This year's actually not been as negative as it could have been. I don't know if you know about our lockdown here in South Africa. Uh, we had one of the strictest lockdowns in the world, which was as well as, I mean, it was confined to your house. We couldn't even go out to exercise for the first five weeks you were allowed to go to the store for groceries or, or pharmaceuticals. And if you have an essential job, anything else, you needed a permit to be able to go anywhere. And not only that, we had a complete ban on the production or sale or distribution of alcohol. So I think the first ban lasted for nine weeks, the alcohol ban, and they couldn't even produce, certainly in the first five or six weeks, because it was deemed a non-essential industry. So they weren't even allowed to produce. Strictly speaking, they shouldn't even have been going to the brewery to like check on the beer that was already in tanks. Of course there were, but strictly speaking, they shouldn't have been, like legally speaking, I guess. Yeah, and, and no sale of alcohol. So as you can imagine, the bootlegging trade was doing you know, quite well. Nice. And home brewing has never been more popular than this year. Then, then they allowed alcohol sales for a few weeks and then reinstated the alcohol ban out of nowhere. No one had time to stock up or anything. It was completely out of nowhere. And that was then for another five weeks, I think. Uh, SAB were dumping hundreds of thousands of litres of, of beer that had been sitting in tank that they couldn't use, the jobs that were lost. SAB is one of the biggest single contributors to you know, tax-wise. You know, so they were losing hundreds of billions of rand probably were in tax. Then they, they you know, allowed alcohol again, and then they banned it again. You know, it's been very difficult. So the craft brewers have had to, to use that word we've been using all year, pivot, over and over again. Because the guys who were focusing on brew pub suddenly needed to package. Brewers that usually only do growlers, then now it's like, oh, God, we need to do bottles or cans because people aren't coming out and we're not allowed to open. Uh, so there's been a lot of change, but it's not all been bad, actually. You know, there have, there have been positives that have come out of it. I mean, the one good thing that came out of it, I think, the home, there are two good things, actually. The increase, because you could still homebrew, that was not banned. Uh, so the homebrew stores could not keep up. They had to keep taking the websites offline because they just couldn't keep up with the orders. You know, I'm quite involved with the homebrew community still. And, and I mean, I wrote a blog post on homebrewing and it went crazy. It's like the, the most popular blog post that I've ever written. And yeah, so many sort of inquiries. So that was good. And the, as you know, like people who homebrew, then they get more interested in beer. And then they maybe, if they weren't craft beer drinkers before, there's a good chance they might become craft beer drinkers and maybe even one day craft brewers. Now, you mentioned lagers, and they certainly do not have a reputation for uh, lasting too long once they're, once they're created. What style of, styles of beer are popular outside of lagers? Because I know when I think of yeah, um, South African beer, I do think of that. Are there any other styles that are gaining, gaining traction? Yeah, I mean, I think just like everywhere else, the IPA is the um, sort of the, the craft beer nerds beer of choice. I mean, like I say, craft beer is very niche in South Africa. And of the people who are drinking it, a lot of them are not big craft beer enthusiasts, let's say. They just maybe would prefer to support a smaller local company. And so a lot of the microbrewers do a lager. All of the all of the sort of the founding fathers, if you will, you know, the early guys who started in sort of 2007, 2008, started with lager because they first needed to convince people that a small brewery could be trusted. And to do that, they needed to give some people something quite familiar. So lagers are still the biggest seller and blonde ales. But um, there's there's been definitely a huge increase in the interest in, in sort of 
um, pale ales and IPAs. And, you know, I mean, we follow US trends in terms of a couple of, last year, everyone's trying to do New England IPAs. And there's also been an interesting, I wouldn't say it's a huge trend, but it's an interesting trend of uh, brewers here trying to use uh, uniquely South African ingredients to, to make something different that you can't find everywhere else. So we have an incredible abundance of indigenous flora, especially around Cape Town. And a lot of those plants, they're medicinal plants and herbs, and they're quite, you know, fragrant. And so people have been trying to use those in, in beers, people using sorghum and people trying to do hybrids of traditional and, and clear beer. Um, so, yeah, there's been some, th- that kind of thing is an interesting emerging trend. It's, it's not very mainstream yet. <laughs> Yeah, that sounds amazing because, uh, you know, once you tap into that, it's, it's, it's limitless. Or have you found that there are some uh, great local cuisine beer pairings? So in, in Cape Town, the, the Cape Malay, which is the, the food, the, the typical Cape Malay food is sort of mildly spicy, but I think fragrant would be a better word for it. And sort of a little, you know, it usually uses um, uh, dried fruits, so it's got a sweet aspect to it as well. Um, so yeah, we've done some actually, for me, that's the cuisine that's most interesting for beer pairings. You know, I mean, the Saison is always a classic and there are a few, actually a few really good Saisons coming out of South Africa now, um, which is definitely an emerging style that you wouldn't have found a couple of years ago. Yeah. So if, if anyone comes to Cape Town, just try and find some Cape Malay food and then get yourself a bunch of beers and do a little tasting. The Cape Malay community is typically Muslim, so you'll have to take the food home and <laughs> do it there because the restaurants wouldn't allow. Good point. Now, what are your favorite beers there? And uh, what do you know about beers that we might be able to get in other places around the world? My fa- So I've got a couple of favorite breweries. And there's a brewery in Cape Town called Agia Project, which does some wonderful sort of hybrid, beer wine hybrids and, and sours, but also hoppy pale ales and, you know, sort of IPAs going from session right through to knock you on your ass kind of thing. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, it's a, he's got two, 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 well, the brewery and a tap room there and then a second tap room. And they're both like super kid friendly with beautiful views and everything, like really nice experience. So anybody visiting Cape Town who's interested in beer, it's an absolute must. Yeah, there's a lot of smaller breweries in Johannesburg, Mad Giant, uh, also doing sort of hop forward styles. I'm a, I'm a big IPA fan, but a, a West Coast IPA, which, you know, everyone in South Africa started doing New England for a while. So I'm a big fan of bitterness. Uh, West Coast IPA and Czech Pilsner is my, <laughs> my two sort of preferred styles. There's a brewery, Soul Barrel, that did this hybrid, worked with a, a brewer, female brewer from Johannesburg to do a... It's, it's actually in the, the Good Beer Hunting article I wrote about this beer. She brewed a traditional Nkomboti and then he, they blended it because he does a lot of barrel aged and wild ferments. And so they blended it and left it in a barrel. So it was a proper fusion of traditional opaque beer and then, you know, clear beer. So that was really interesting. It's not something you're going to drink pints of, but it, but it was very interesting. Good with cheese, you know, share a bottle between a few of you. I'm actually traveling to Durban next week and I haven't been to that part of the country in a couple of years. So it's going to be very interesting to see what, what they're doing. In terms of finding South African beers outside of South Africa, one of our largest craft breweries, Devil's Peak, also produces and distributes in the UK. Other than that, I'm really not sure. Do you hop into other countries in that region? And can you tell me a little bit about other, other beers there that, that you like? So, um, 
Not as much as I would like to. And it was my my goal was to do more of that this year, which obviously didn't happen. And next year, which probably won't happen either. So there are emerging and very, like, very young craft beer markets. I don't think I'd even call it a scene. Um, there are a few breweries, let's say, in Kenya. Kenya has four or five now. Tanzania has a couple. There's two in Botswana. Uh, Ghana has got a couple. You know, it's it's very spaced out. Uh, it's quite a successful one in Nigeria. The only, I mean, I've I was actually in Botswana last year uh, visiting the first mi- microbrewery there and doing some events with them. We we hosted the what I believe was um, Botswana's first ever food and beer pairing, which was quite cool. And you know, I was there for the launch of the brewery, and I really I enjoyed it so much on on all levels. You know, and I really wanted to do more of that and work with other breweries around Africa. I haven't had the opportunity to, it's actually quite expensive traveling within Africa and I just haven't had the opportunity. I've been reading a lot about Nigeria recently and Nigerian food in particular and how contact with a, a brewer there and she, like we've been chatting and it's sort of top of my list. It was a country I was never really, I was a bit scared of actually, if I'm completely honest, it was never on my list of places to go and now I really want to go there. I actually uh, tasted one of their beers or two of their beers. Uh, my husband and I started a beer competition in, uh, we sort of launched it in 2018, but the first actual competition was 2019. And obviously that was the only one so far because we had to cancel this year's. Oh, no. But um, it's called the African Beer Cup. And it's the only competition, the only sort of regular competition that's open to breweries throughout Africa. And so in our first, our first year, we thought, wouldn't it be great? We just want one brewery outside of South Africa. Then we can say it's like pan-African. And we had 11, 11 different countries, breweries from 11 different countries entered, which was like way beyond our wildest dreams. And um, two or three of the microbreweries from outside South Africa won medals, which was wonderful. And the, this brewery in Nigeria was one of them. Uh, they did a mango IPA, if I remember rightly. And then um, a coffee stout using Nigerian coffee. And I think that was the one that won a medal. Yeah. So yeah, I'd really like to do more of that. I, that's the only time I've really ha- had the opportunity to to taste beers from. I mean, Namibia. I've contacts with a brewery in Namibia, and he sends his beers down for for feedback because you know they don't have any BJCP judges or anyone. He's like, everyone says they love it, but they would say that because they're my friends. So. <laughs> yeah, that's an international situation though. Uh, but that's oh, that's so exciting. Uh, I didn't realize that about the the expense, though. I mean, that's just my, I'm thinking, oh, well, people in Europe bounce around from country to country. I figured it might be the the case, but it's just in terms of uh, of size, you know, not nearby. (laughs) That's for sure. I'm so interested in your writing career, too. So, I mean, all I ever wanted to do was be a writer. From my, My friends always say I'm so lucky. I was like, 10 years old and I wanted to be uh, at the time I wanted to be the first female editor of the Guardian newspaper in the UK because that was the paper my mum read you know um and but it always what I enjoyed at school you know English was always my favorite subject and all I ever wanted to do was be a writer and then I studied journalism at university and I really I wanted to be a news journalist until about the second year of university and then I realized I don't have the constitution for news journalism so the third year, year of university had a complete change and um, it was actually around the time that the budget airlines launched in, in the UK. So like Ryanair, and they, they offered at the time, it was like five pounds plus taxes to fly. It was crazy, crazy cheap. And so I started doing a little bit of travel writing at, at university. And then afterwards, 
Um, I, I taught English as a foreign language for about eight, seven or eight years, oh. um, which was a way to kind of, that paid the bills. And then I would write about the places and then submit to magazines afterwards and then get money back afterwards. It was, what I really wanted to do out of university was, was write for Lonely Planet. That was my like dream job. I actually applied straight out of university. I'm pretty, I'm so glad I don't still have that laptop because I'm sure it was quite an embarrassing letter if I read it back now like I love your books please give me a job <laughs> yeah I'm sure it would make me cringe and then I applied again a few years later and I the first time I never heard back from them the second time I got the uh, thanks we'll keep your letter on file kind of email and then, then I actually wrote a, a guidebook for another publisher um I was living in the Canary Islands and in, in Spanish islands at the time and um, yeah I ended up writing a a guidebook for, for a different company traveled for a while and then um i applied a third time this would have would have been about 10 years after leaving university and this time i got the interview and everything and then i got the the job it's not you you, you it's you could have uh, on a contract basis you know so you have to pitch for every title but it was like my dream job and i ended up i mean my first uh, commission I mean, I was living, I wasn't really living anywhere, actually. I was somewhere between Canada and South Korea and the UK. Um, and I got a commission to go to Angola, which was never on my list of places to visit. Oh. You, nothing about it. And it's very hard to travel. It was quite a difficult first commission for Lonely Planet. But after that, because I ended up moving to Cape Town, which is purely because South Africa is beautiful and amazing. You know, I, I, I'd never wanted to stay anywhere for longer than a year beforehand, really, really itchy feet all the time. And now this is the only country that could grab me. And yeah, I just, I ended up doing a lot of their South African content. Hopefully we'll do again next year, because as you can imagine, this year has not been a great one for travel publishing. Thank goodness for beer, actually. <laughs> exactly. Now, I, I'm curious, I, I, I think when I was younger, I had visions of traveling the world and writing about music, for example, and then life happened, you know, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I'm very happy that life happened, but has it been tough uh, to, to cut ties like that and just, and just go and be on your own? What are the, what are the, on balance, what are the pros and cons of being such a free spirit, such a traveler? You know, to me, it sounds like a dream, but there must have been a little bit of sacrifice in there as well, or maybe not. No, I mean, so I actually met my husband while we were traveling. So then we had very similar, you know, we met on an overland trip going through Africa. And then we traveled together in Asia and we taught English and, you know, we traveled through Asia for a while. And, you know, not, neither of us was actually particularly interested in staying in one place. And then Cape Town happened, you know. So that was really easy because it would be like, oh, I've got a commission to do this. Do you want to come? Yeah, sure. You know, or, or he'd be, or he was like, oh, I want to go. I, I really enjoy because we, we, my parents used to live in Cape Town for a while, mm. and we'd visited Cape Town. And then he was like, I really loved Cape Town. I'd like to live there. Um, I'm thinking of applying to do a master's degree. Do you want to go? Yeah, sure. You know, we were both like that. You know, it was so it worked really well. But uh, we have since had a child, and that's when everything changes. Sure. And that yeah. that's when the the travel writing actually did become difficult, especially when he was little. You know, I mean, my first trip away, I think he was 10 months old and I cried um, like for three days before I left. And of course, he, he's got no idea that I'm all I'm thinking he's just going to know suddenly that I've abandoned him. And really, the really terrible thing is and a friend messaged me and said that the really bad thing is you'll as soon as you're away, you will actually quite enjoy being away. And also 
as long as someone's hugging him and feeding him and stuff, I don't think they really mind that much. That's the really hurtful thing. <laughs> You're like so so upset about leaving this child, but you know, he's like, Dad's there, so he's that's eh, fine. It's it was it was different and, and traveling there was a lot of contracts that I turned down because I didn't want to be gone for more than two weeks maximum. You know, and, and sometimes I would take him with me. So when he was little, I took him on road trips, which was really hard work, and would take him with. But then some of the destinations that I was potentially going to be sent to were malaria zones. And I didn't want to take a baby or a toddler into malaria zone either. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why a lot of my Lonely Planet stuff is focused on South Africa, because I can go for two weeks and come back or go for a week and come back. You know, as he gets into the tween, tween and teen years, we'll see. Maybe I will take those three-month contracts and let my husband deal with him. Definitely. <laughs> Can you tell me about On Tap Beer magazine? Yes, yeah, so it's a quarterly print magazine. We haven't been able to print this year for various reasons. Obviously, distribution was non-existent because, you know, tap rooms were closed and, and so forth. And it covers, it's not a technical, we, we have a homebrew column in there and, and one section that's sort of more technical for, for brewers, written by brewers, for brewers sort of thing. But for the most part, it is, it's for the drinker and not necessarily for the nerdy craft beer drinker because there aren't enough of them to sustain a magazine so you know it's got some local travel and international travel and food sort of stuff in there as well but it's all tied together with a beery sort of thread so yeah it's grown it's grown quite nicely um until this year of course because everything has uh it's sort of gone to a standstill but we're hoping it'll pick up again in the new year obviously advertising has been a real issue this year because People don't want to spend money on that sort of thing. But it's a lot of fun to, to put together, you know, working with uh, local and international contributors for the magazine. So, yeah, it's, um, it's good. It's, it, the, the last few issues are available on the website, on tapmag.co.za. They're free for people to download. So, you know, it's not quite the same as flicking through a real magazine, but it sort of keeps, if people are interested in what's going on in beer in South Africa and beyond. Something that keeps me very busy at this time of year about four years ago, I started an initiative, South African National Beer Day. So International Beer Day falls in August because it's a Northern Hemisphere initiative. But August is not great beer drinking weather, particularly in Cape Town. It's cold and windy and rainy, very rainy. You know, we'd always have these beer day and IPA day, same time. It's like the first week of August or something. So we'd have these events and we're sort of huddled around a fire, you know, wanting to drink Russian Imperial Stouts or something. And I wanted to ask, like, well, why don't we just start our own? Lots of countries, like I think Canada has its own beer day. The UK probably has one. I'm sure Belgium has one. It's like, why don't we start our own? So discussed with some of the brewers what the best sort of date for it would be. And we decided the first Saturday in February, because February, the weather is, well, in, in Cape Town at least, it's perfect. And some parts of the country, it's the wet season. But it's warm everywhere. It's good beer drinking weather, you know. Mm. And it's after the Christmas rush and it gives brewers a little bit of a you know, continued boost. So this year, well, next year, 2021, will be the fifth South African National Beer Day. Basically, it's just you can do whatever you want to do. There's a website, beerday.co.za, and I put a map up there and then the brewers contact me with their events. And it could be anything. It could be a festival or it could be just we're doing two for one on pints or we're doing we've brewed a special beer for the day or we're having a, a braai, which is a barbecue. You know, it doesn't have to be anything big and fancy. Um, and also, if you don't have an event near you or you don't want to go out, especially this year, we'll be pushing the drink at home 
aspect. So we're going to have a little downloadable pack so you can sort of pretend you're having a beer festival at home sort of thing. Okay. And the idea is, is literally just like, we're a nation of beer drinkers, right? South Africa by far is a nation of beer drinkers. But people don't think of it that way because, you know, I mean, we've got a very well-established wine um, industry. Beer has this second fiddle thing to wine, right? goes back to Roman times, I believe, where it's, it's fancy to drink wine, the plebs drink beer. And so for some reason, people just sort of, I don't know, not proud of drinking beer. So the idea is just to say, hey, we're a nation of beer drinkers, let's have a beer together. Oh, I, I, for one, in a different world in Connecticut, USA, would be uh, very excited to hoist a beer on South Africa uh, Beer Day. So I'm looking forward to that. My thanks to Lucy Korn. You can follow her on Twitter at Lucy Korn or check out On Tap Beer Magazine at ontapmag.co.za or ZA if you're hip like that. I'll have links to her work in the show notes. Welcome to the after party. Pull up a leopard print body pillow and lounge around. It was really exciting to be able to Zoom with Lucy. This was uh, the second person in a foreign country that I've gotten to speak with uh, for the show. Hopefully it won't be the last. I've spoken to uh, a couple in Ireland for that episode. So, yeah, I thought the quality was decent, Uh, certainly on her end, (laughs) for some reason I sound like I'm in a shoebox so gonna work on that for future ones I did my best in editing please don't uh, write your complaints well go ahead write your complaints write me anything I'm at beer.snob at yahoo.com that's right I'm still on yahoo so I got to that feeling during the interview that I had when I interviewed Tara Nuren in episode 42 where I start to feel a little bit jealous of the subject you know, there was a time when I was in, well, I guess after college, when I was, you know, had these dreams of maybe traveling the world and writing about music and, you know, really into, actually really into African music at the time. So I probably would have taken a flight to Benin and just to see what would happen, you know. And it never happened. I'm, I'm not looking back. I'm looking forward. Things are good now. Actually getting a little bit of sleep. Our little daughter who's nine months old is... Still waking up most nights, so we're actually looking into maybe paying a sleep expert to help us out. Is that a good idea? I don't know. Send me your thoughts. I've got some great guests lined up, including AJ Kierens, who's the uh, host of the 16 Ounce Canvas podcast. We've got Matt Westfall, the brewer at Counterweight Brewing in Hamden, Connecticut, and Jackie Dodd-Mallory, also known as the Beeriness. She's an amazing writer who pairs food with beer. She's a chef. She's a great photographer. I'm very excited to meet her. So we're going to put a record on to close the show. This track comes from the Connecticut-based singer-songwriter Robert C. Fullerton. I love his voice. His lyrics are always picture-forming. He's the complete package. So I recommend you check him out, purchase his work. He's on Amazon, Apple Music, 
Bandcamp, Spotify. Here's Robert C. Fullerton's Ravens and Crows. Until next time, sip well. Just saw two or three of them flying to the tree again. It's the kind of thing they often do. Four or five or six or seven took a dive down from the heaven. It's the kind of thing they often do. The kind of thing they often do. Eight or nine or ten of them Hanging on the line again It's the kind of thing they often do Handful more makes fifteen Start to look like a movie scene It's the kind of thing they often do The kind of thing they often do and crows what's on your mind I get the feeling it's not kind ribbons and crows what's on your mind unkindness conspiracy murder Tap on your door, what are these tricks? Not the kind of thing they often do The kind of thing they often do Ravens and crows, what's on your mind? I get the feeling it's not kind And grow.